1: hey everybody thanks for tuning in to deep dive the all music books podcast where we speak with authors of music books bios history criticism cultural takes and everything in between i'm your host steve J. Today's guest is Jillian Garr, who has written many music books on many genres of music, including Elvis Presley, Springsteen, Nirvana, Jimi Hendrix, The History of Women in Rock and Roll, and many others. Welcome, Jillian.
0: Oh, it's great to be here.
1: It's great to have you. Your new book, Elton John at 75, is the second entry in an incredibly beautiful series called At 75, Can you explain to our listeners the concept behind this series and how it was pitched to you?
0: Well, it was the publishers that approached me, which is what I like best, I think, you know, because that means they're already sold on the idea. You don't have to bring an idea to them and try and convince them it's worthy. Yeah, I'm not sure how they thought it up. But uh, I, I think it's interesting that the two people they started with were David Bowie and Elton John, you know, obviously going for the heavy hitters and people that had long enough careers that you could do something like this. Right. And I guess just present it in a different way. I mean, lists are very popular that started in magazines I saw some time ago and now being online, god, it seems there's lists for everything now, but but usually those don't go on too long. So this was more of a challenge cuz 75, you know, it's not just like 10 best riffs from led zeppelin or
1: something right right 75 is the big number and it's interesting how many musicians are going to qualify at least in age because i know the bowie premiere was you know tied into his age but it's interesting how many musicians are going to qualify for this series in the coming years as as that generation gets older
0: Yeah, well, you know, I'm working on Bruce Springsteen at 75
1: Ah. now, so there's another one. Wow, wow. (laughs) And I know Alice Cooper is already scheduled for for coming out. And uh, Ah. boy, it's funny, too, when you say Springsteen, too, because I I just think he's a little bit younger than those guys, but I guess not. (laughs) Interesting.
0: Time flies.
1: No doubt about that. So 75 significant career achievements and life events. Where does one start? What was your process like?
0: Well. What I tried to do was uh, get some balance in there because you're covering 75 years and you don't want any one period to just have all of it. You have to kind of spread it out a bit. So it helped that it's sort of a broad definition in that it's not just career stuff. I look at things that happened in his life. So personal events, like getting married. And in Elton's case, there were two marriages, two weddings. So, um, you know, that's two entries right there or other things that he did. Um, I mean, the 70s is obviously the commercial peak, one would say. But you don't want to get it too heavily involved in there. I think maybe the greatest challenge was uh, finding entries for the rest of the book, for the post-70s, you know, making sure they were adequately covered.
1: Right, so you, I'm sure you had your list and there was the go-to, and then it's like, okay, so how do I fill in here around these things without just making it a straightforward take of his whole career? And as you mentioned, there's a lot of social marks in there.
0: Yeah, well, let's see. I mean, as far as non, non-music things... Uh, there was, you know, he took The Sun, the tabloid, to court. I thought that was a pretty big deal because most people don't do that, most people in his position. In fact, he said, he writes this in his own autobiography, that uh, when he felt The Sun libeled him, that he was advised by Mick Jagger to just, you know, let it go. It takes too much time and too much money, and If they're wrong, they just give a little notice in the paper and no one really knows that it was even rescinded. But no, he wanted to do it. And then uh, his charity works, that's obviously such a key part with him and how he expanded that to not just being a regular donor to things, but getting more involved in setting up an actual foundation. Before we came on, I was looking up, I wanted a reminder of, of his recent honor at the White House. You know, he went to the White House and he was given an award and I thought, What was this for again? So I looked it up and it was the National Humanities Award. So obviously tying in with his charity work and getting knighted. His charity work was a big reason why he got knighted, which, you know, that's a pinnacle for a Brit to become a sir, (laughs) to be that elevated. Although, well, I guess you could be a lord after that. Um, He's not Lord John yet, but but who knows?
1: <laughs> right right well and you know he's interesting too because he was so outlandish that there's a lot of material there you know that you can think of and and, and sort through it uh, i'm curious was there any kind of a sketch or a baseline from the publisher you mentioned this was their kind of idea for a book uh, or did you have you know complete freedom to choose these milestones
0: um yeah i did i mean the first thing i did after on signing the contract was i had to give a list what are the 75 points you do and so, yeah, I just I just chose them without any input. Oh. And I'm assuming if uh, they didn't like one of them or thought this is repetitious or whatever, that the editor would have come back and said, well, no, don't have point fifteen and 32 or whatever it was. I assume they could probably make those changes, but they didn't. So that was set up. And I, I kind of approached it very systematically in that uh, I had a word length. I think it was between 40 and 45,000 words. So you look at that. And you divide it
1: by 75. Mm. So that's how long your entries are. It's high math. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's interesting, too, because uh, there's a narrative in each of these books. You know, like sometimes the, the lists are set up start to finish. They, they move around a little bit. Like for Bowie, number one was he was born. And then like number yeah. five was he died. But then there's a bunch that <laughs> follows. So they're really interesting reads. And let, let's talk about a couple of those that really caught my eye. In early entry was number four and it's obviously a huge part of Elton and that's his relationship with songwriter Bernie Taupin of whom Elton said, I'm a musical mouthpiece for his lyrics. What I didn't know and what you can tell us about, if you would, is the ad that created this team.
0: Well, um, in how they came together, it really brought home to me the sort of randomness in that happened in a person's life and that happened in their career. I mean, If one thing had not happened the way it played out, maybe they would have met. There was an ad from uh, Liberty Records. They were looking for songwriters and musicians and other people that they placed in the music weeklies. Britain at that time, I think, had four music weeklies. And both Elton and Bernie saw it independently. And Elton got an appointment and went in. Hmm. And almost as an afterthought, the man he was meeting with, had said um, he liked Elton, but he wasn't quite sure what to do with him. But then almost as an afterthought, he says, oh, you know, you said you're looking for a lyricist. Well, I got this letter from someone who says he's a lyricist. And that was Bernie. And, you know, think about that. What if Elton had come in two days earlier? Right. Or this guy had Bernie's letter on his desk. Never would have got to him. Even Bernie, after he wrote the letter and prepared it and has it in the envelope, ready to send off to London, he didn't mail it. He just, you know, put it aside and forgot about it. And his mother noticed it sitting on the mantle, you know, this stamp letter. So she mailed it for him. What if she doesn't do that? Mm -hmm. Or what if it gets mailed two weeks later? And again, you don't have that connection. So, (laughs) yeah. So that's just really remarkable.
1: It is. And, and you could argue that, you know, the Beatles meeting and, and all of this stuff is certainly some sort of happenstance, but this one, it just blew my mind because it's like, you know, both very talented men, uh, but put together, it's one of the all-time great musical teams.
0: I mean, when you look at the two of them, Bernie really didn't have as much experience as Elton did. He wanted to be a songwriter, but he'd never actually written a song, whereas Elton had been a performing musician for some time. You know, he had started writing his own melodies. So he was kind of more advanced in that regard. And, uh, you know, they hit it off, too, which is another thing. What if they hadn't connected? But they did. And, and of course, they were both young and ambitious and wanted to make it. So I think, you know, it wasn't too hard to get on with this other person that you just met, especially because each had something the other couldn't provide. You know, Elton needed a good lyricist and, and Bernie needed a good musician.
1: And speaking of, um, you know, famous partners or cohorts, another one that caught my mind uh, was Elton's residency at the famed L.A. nightclub, The Troubadour. And that really, really helped him.
0: Yeah, what's a bit ironic about that is um, that he wasn't sure that was going to go over. And uh, he had a chance to open, going on tour as an opening act of America. But and he was really incensed that his manager turned that down. But there were people at the record companies and the U.S. record company that really liked the, the first two albums and thought, you know, this guy has something, has something special. And um, so they fly over there and Elton really didn't have high expectations for the trip. So he thought, well, at least I can get a lot of records because, of course, being a keen record collector Mm. and became a regular at the Tower Records in L.A., you know, they closed the shop for him so he could browse in peace. Mm. And even he gets there. And at one point, he just had an attack of nerves and wanted to leave because of his says, I'm I'm flying home. And so he has to be talked down. No, no, you're not going to fly home. No, you have to do this. But, yeah, it really it really was the moment that that changed his career in this country, certainly. Because here he's in a major music center. Obviously, America is a big country and you have all the, the states in between. You know, he made a splash in L.A. and then in New York. And then as you have to do when if you want to make it in this country, you do have to come and tour a lot. So he did start doing that. But he was coming from a position of strength because of all the acclaim he'd received at the Troubadour.
1: Yeah. And that was a very famous club for breaking artists, especially I think it was like 69, 70 or something like that. But right at the peak, that was a good gig, you know. We're speaking with Jillian Gar. She's the author of a brand new book called Elton John at 75 that is just a ton of fun to sit and sift through and read. You know, Tumbleweed Connection was my early exposure to Elton John, and it's a little bit off the grid. And you mentioned that it was steeped in Americana, which probably had a lot of appeal for a young U.S. boy like myself. You know, it was definitely, you know, different. At that point, neither Elton or Bernie had been to the States yet. Is that right?
0: That's, that's true, yeah. But, you know, they both had dreams. It might be hard to for people now to realize, but back then to Britain, certainly America was, you know, this golden land. Especially if you're interested in pop culture. Everything cool seemed to emanate from America. And, you know, we had big cars and, and Coca-Cola and denim jeans that were different here than the knockoffs you, you got in Britain. And the music, starting with Elvis and all that great rock and roll of that period. Then, of course, you had the British invasion in the 60s. But by the late 60s, things were coming back to America. Um, obviously, Bob Dylan from 65 on, certainly a bigger presence, and the band. And both both Elton and Bernie were huge fans of their music. Bernie in particular had a fascination for the American West. Whereas Elton, his thing with America was the music and the rock and roll. Bernie hmm. was turning into the whole Western thing. And that was throughout his growing up you know it's kind of an idealized look at the country but you know their perceptions of what it might be
1: (laughs) right well it's funny too because i mean he would go on you know yellow brick road captain fantastic you know concept albums and this wasn't necessarily a concept album tumbleweed connection but it was so linked you know in informed in the same way if that makes any sense you know the lyrical and the the time and the culture is spot on
0: yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, not a concept album per se, but it certainly, you know, it was a thematic album in the same way I think the Revolver, the Beatles' Revolver is being thematic. To me, it always sounded like a very black and white album, even though you wouldn't say it's a concept album either. But it just, all the songs, they have a similar feeling and a similar tone.
1: Yeah, thematic is perfect actually. So thanks for that. Um, (laughs) And you know, I want to let people. I'm going to encourage people to go pick up this book and read what they like. But I do want to just talk about a couple more entries. And um, in the you learn something new every time you read department. I had virtually no idea that someone saved my life tonight was autobiographical. After all these years, I, I had no idea.
0: Yeah, I had I had no idea either until reading Elton's memoir. Maybe he's talked about it in certain interviews, but I hadn't read them. But yeah, in his memoir, he went into more detail about that and just advice he got from Long John Baldry, who Elton had been in this rather tumultuous relationship with a woman and was being rushed into a marriage that he didn't want. And he credited Long John Baldry with saying, you know, hey, you're gay, don't get married. It would be a mistake, a big mistake. (laughs) So that's what that all relates to. I mean, certainly you don't need to know that to right, right. like the song, but it does add another dimension to it once you do know that.
1: Do you have a favorite period for Elton's music or a favorite album or song? And I should exclude the 1974 greatest hits because I don't think there's a person <laughs> on the planet that doesn't have that album.
0: <laughs> and I love that cover, too. It was yeah, a great cover. classic
1: like, Elton. You know,
0: in the white and the white hat and all that. Well, I guess it would be the 70s because that was, you know, the period when I became acquainted with them and you heard the songs on the radio all the time. And so for that, I liked um, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road just because, you know, a double album. So that was impressive. And just, you know, the songs are all kind of some of them are, are pretty outlandish. I mean, you start with Funeral for a Friend, uh, just this sort of doomy funereal music. But it it sounds cool when, uh, when the tempo picks up. Um, you know, thoughtful things like um, the title song in itself—beautiful. All the young girls love Alice. Oh. Uh, of course, you're kind of like in the '70s is a little shocking to hear that that kind of thing. Candle in the wind. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now, of course, all the other associations with Princess Diana.
1: Right, right.
0: And even the cover. I mean, you remember this getting albums and just sort of, especially when you're a kid and just trying to figure them out. Yeah. And you know what does this all mean? And with a double album, you know, it has a gatefold sleeve and all the illustrations for each of the songs that you looked at. There was just so much to look at, and it's it's not the same on a CD.
1: It's not. And and I love CDs, but albums, and especially when you're just getting into music, you know, whether you're alone or had a couple of friends over that, that album cover was always out for whatever you're listening to. It got passed around. It's just hours and hours of yeah entertainment, you know, and uh, that's a good one. You know, I, I come back a lot to uh, Madman Across the Water. I got to go back because I have that on CD uh, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. I had it on vinyl, obviously, but I want to see how the stories break over four sides as opposed to two discs. You know what I mean? Like that record seemed to me to tell a very interesting lengthy story in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm curious about that. So maybe I'll have to go find a vinyl copy. You have a (laughs) turntable, Steve. (laughs) Um, So, um, the other thing that I loved in here, and this is kind of the insight that, you know, is so interesting uh, for fans. There's a top eight Desert Island discs that Elton chose. And we'll let the readers discover these themselves. But was there something on that list of eight that really surprised you?
0: Well, I was surprised that for the John Lennon song, he chose a cover that John did of Stand By Me instead of one of John's own songs. He just he said he felt they were too personal. So that's hmm. why I didn't pick one. I mean, John's murder was was pretty traumatic for him because they were pretty good friends. When, when they met in the 70s, they just clicked and hit it off very well. And of course, there were a lot of connections with him. He got John back to do his uh, next to last live performance. And he was uh, godfather to Sean when Sean was born. So I, th- I thought that was surprising. Curious as to what he would pick and then to go for a cover.
1: Hmm.
0: (laughs) I'd like to know what his favorite Lennon songs are.
1: Definitely. Definitely. You should ask him. Well, it's funny. We had an author of a book on John Lennon uh, on our podcast, and uh, he spoke quite a bit about that rock and roll album and, you know, how it doesn't maybe get the credit it deserves. You know, that's kind of the roots of the whole Beatles, really. And it's John's take on them. So maybe there's something there as well.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: But the brevity of the writing in this series, it's very targeted. You've written so many books, and, and obviously there are traditional bios or, or, or whatever. But It's a very thick book, but it's not a thick bio, uh, but rather highlights. And then they're illustrated with pictures. I'm curious what your strategy was in writing these pieces. You mentioned a word count, but did you sketch out like what you wanted to say? Did the graphics inform kind of the, the headline, so to speak, as to what the accomplishment was?
0: No because I didn't see any of that until after I got a PDF with the layout of the book. Wow so I had no idea what they were going to do until I saw it and by then everything's already already written. Wow So no that, that wasn't a concern at all. because these entries are so short, they're between 500 and 600 words. I didn't really sketch out anything because that was so short. If you're doing a chapter, say in in another book, you know that would be a few thousand words perhaps then, yeah, I might do an outline for that. Well, how? what am I going to cover in this chapter and in what order? I mean, in a chapter, you're dealing with a lot of different things, a lot of different subjects. But in these entries, you're just dealing with one thing. So it's already very focused. You know, you're writing about this album or you're writing about how he got involved with The Lion King or, you know, it's just really on one thing. So, yeah, you didn't really have to sketch it out too much because you sort of know what it's going to be.
1: Did you find writing shorter pieces harder, easier, more fun, more challenging?
0: Mm, well, it can be it can be more fun because you feel like you're getting through things quicker. <laughs> right. I had one document that was just a list of all the entries. and whenever I finished one, I would then bold it so I would know, okay, I finished that one. So it was fun seeing them all you know gradually get bold. it's a it's a record of your accomplishment of the progress you're making. So that was fun.
1: Definitely. And like we said, you know, it's interesting because 75, you know, you can come up with 10 or 20 things, probably straight up pretty easy, but 75, you got to dig a little bit, you know?
0: Yeah, to kind of fill out things. I mean, there's a lot of obvious high points. There's, there's more than you think at first. I mean, it, it was easy to get to, I'd say maybe 40 or 50 even, because he's had such a long career and right. there have been so many highlights. Right. And it it was just interesting to realize how ingrained he is in popular culture, because it was pretty easy to think of a breadth of a breadth of things.
1: You answered a question I had, but I want to just um, kind of merge it with another, because graphics play, do play such a huge part in this book. And I'm surprised, really surprised that you didn't see it until it was, you know, there. But I have to say, like, some of the things, like the period piece advertisements and the gig posters, there's an 8-track image with the cover on there. And they're just, <laughs> they're so incredible. They take you back in time for sure, but they also provide some really interesting insight into the marketing of music at that time. Do you have any thoughts on that?
0: Um, well, I, I thought whoever did the photo research did a fantastic job. I've done books for Quarto before, and I've, I've seen how they do that. So, you know, they obviously know what they're doing and know where to look and find these things. I think the first book I saw of theirs was Queen, the illustrated mm. history. And it does the same thing, you know, it has the period ads. And those are always so fun, especially when, you know, sometimes maybe they have the surrounding ads that sort of put the main ad in context. I think also that's why throughout the process, uh, you know, they wanted the list of what I was going to do. And then you turn the manuscript in in stages. You don't just wait and turn it all in at once. So at certain point, I had to turn in this many entries. And then by another point, I had to turn in the next round of entries. So I'm assuming what happens is that once that gets in and the editor looks at it, you know, they pass it on to the designers to look through and say, okay, yeah, okay. Well, she talks about the you know Goodbye Yellow Brick Road album, so we have to look for those things. I think they use that as a, as a key to what to look
1: for. Right, right. And, you know, as we said, 75 is a big number, but I have to ask, was there a favorite or a weird Elton moment that you really wanted to include, but you just couldn't find a way?
0: No, I don't think so, because by then I was trying to, like, fill it out and get to 75.
1: Right, right.
0: I know I was going to write about more of the musicals, but then I thought, uh, you know, obviously you do Lion King because that was the first one. And I guess Billy Elliot would be the next well-known one. So I know I was going to have an entry on Aida, but I cut that out. It's one of the strangest entries. I think this made it hard for the designers because so they couldn't really come up with anything for it. I think they just have a picture of him. It was was uh, when he was at, at Shoreditch University, just uh, an impromptu appearance. The The university was going to have a music act that night who canceled. And someone at the, the student group putting it on said, oh, well, Elton doesn't live too far away. Let's <laughs> ask him if he'll show, if he'll come tonight. And this is in 77 when, you know, he's at his commercial yeah. peak. And uh, so they go to his home in Windsor, which, you know, they evidently knew where it was. Wow! And he said he was at home watching tennis on television. And his butler comes in and says, oh, there's some students for you to see you. And they tell him what they want. You know, would you come and do a performance tonight at our college? And he thinks, oh, OK. And
1: he wow. just
0: agrees to go on. He said, just make sure I have a grand piano.
1: That, that's awesome.
0: And yeah, yeah, he goes back. And the, the, the students go back. They're setting up for this show. And no one believes it, that Elton John is going to come by. Like, oh, yeah, right. But then he does. And. The administration wouldn't let them move the grand piano into a larger room, so they had to do the show in the chapel. And then he shows up and uh, gets a brief sound check and did about a half-hour set, by which time the chapel is stuffed full of people as (laughs) word spreads. Yes, he's really here. Wow. And then he hangs out and chats to the students afterwards. So,
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's a great story. That is a great story. You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. We're speaking with Jillian Gar. She's the author of Elton John at Seventy Five. Two thousand and nineteen was a big year for Elton for two reasons: the premiere of his film Rocket Man and his autobiography Me. You've mentioned Me. I've not read it yet. I've still got a, a copy of it. My wife thought it was terrific, and I've only heard good things about it. What were your thoughts on those two? Let's go to, to Rocket Man first, uh, which had some amazing graphics, and I, you know, I saw the billboard on Sunset Strip, which was beautiful. Oh, did you see the movie?
0: I did, oh yeah, I watched it. Yeah, I enjoyed it. The accuracy I thought was, uh, it was a more accurate movie than say Bohemian Rhapsody, which I thought was a bit of a whitewash in areas, whereas Elton's was more upfront um, and open about things. In fact, I I read an interview where they, the producers had suggested, well, maybe you could, you know, like tone down some of that stuff because they wanted to get a PG rating. And he said, I haven't lived a PG life. (laughs) You know, this is what happened to him. Yes, he did use drugs. Yes, he had wild times. And, uh, you know, you have to address that. You can't deny they didn't happen. But plus, I mean, it also makes sense to the story because that's something he overcomes. Right. Uh, it's about, you know, becoming famous and then the indulgences that nearly dragged him under and how he overcame that. So that you have to include them because that gives sort of the natural narrative arc and uh, conclude with the happy ending. It was interesting how they they work the songs in, uh, like showing his unhappy childhood and they have the character singing a song that he later wrote about that kind of a jukebox musical in a sense because the songs are already written and they slot them in. Right. But it was interesting how they did that at different points. It's not just him going through and doing the songs in performance. The songs also comment on the action. Right. So that, that was kind of innovative and fun.
1: Yep. Yeah. I agree. That's the thing that stuck out to me as well. And, and, that the, the songs would pop up to convey more of what was happening at, on the screen at that time. And it wasn't a timeline or anything. It wasn't always live performance. It was conceptual. So it was, it was cool. Another thing that's cool is your book goes right up to the now, with 2020's Jewel Box series and 2021's Pandemic the Lockdown sessions uh, included. And um, I was unaware of both, but since reading your book, uh, I have now investigated. What are your thoughts on those two?
0: Well, you know, a lot, of, a lot of artists put out lockdown albums during, well, what else do you have to do? You couldn't tour. So what's a musician going to do? They just keep creating. And especially with, with Elton, I mean, he was in the middle of a tour. So really, he was he was kind of at loose ends. And the one thing I, I really learned from working on this is that he has quite a work ethic and hmm. does not like to be idle. So it was not a surprise at all that he would say, OK, well, then I guess I'll do an album. And. And how do you record an album if you can't be in the studio working with other people and, and getting through those challenges? As I say, the work ethic, I was thinking, after this book came out, you know, there were already things happening that if my book had come out a year later, I probably would have put them in. I mean, there was this working with Britney Spears, sudden and unexpected. That's something you'd put in there. And getting the medal from the White House, that would probably be, have been another entry. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to bring it up to date as much as I could. I didn't have to put the lockdown thing and I could have thrown some other entry in there, done another album from earlier in his career, but I wanted to get it as, as up to date and as close to publication as possible. So that was kind of an obvious inclusion when I, I was working on the book when it was announced that he had an album coming up and I thought, okay, well, that's got to be in there. Right. And then it was announced that his tour was going to continue. So I, that's the last entry because Actually, I guess it makes it kind of contemporary because that tour is still going.
1: (laughs) That's my next question. The Farewell Tour, it's been going on a while, but it is apparently coming to a close. So two questions. The first one is, have you seen the tour? And the second one is, do you think this is really it? Do you think he will stop performing? Because it seems to me like that's just his lifeblood.
0: Yeah, well, he was in Tacoma, not Seattle, so I didn't see him. Though Now I think maybe I should have tried to go there. But yeah, I'm, I'm sure he'll perform again. I think it was more that he didn't want to do tours anymore because mm. that's long and that can get tiring, and especially as you're older. I'm wondering if after a while he might you know, do another residency because he's done them in Vegas before and he could do them probably in other places. Um, and certainly I think he'll do other performances. And when he announced it was his last tour, one reason for that that he gave was that he wanted to spend more time with his sons and seeing them grow up, which is something any parent can relate to. Uh, But then the pandemic came. So, you know, that pushed everything back and his sons are now three years older and especially the older one, you know, probably not too long before turning 18 and then go off to college or work or whatever it is he wants to do, you know, start your own life. So then you're not as involved as much. So yeah. I think with that happening, you know, we'll definitely see him perform more because his children will have their own lives.
1: Speaking of children and speaking of, of younger people, I find it incredible. You mentioned the Britney Spears song, but I find it amazing that he's been able to leave his mark on an, an entirely new generation with updates and remixes. My kids are very much into a Tiny Dancer, which is the Britney Spears. And then there's Cold Heart with Dua Lipa. What do you think of those songs?
0: He just has such a keen interest in music, and that's been true since before he was a musician himself, although they kind of go hand in hand as he started playing so young. But, you know, a keen record collector and uh, always listening to whatever was on the radio or now online, or even when he was a big artist, going into record stores and just picking up acts he'd never heard of, and I don't know how he searches that now. I'm sure he still goes to record stores. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he probably looks around online and finds things because he's just genuinely interested in music and he likes it. When he works with other artists, he just seems so willing to, you know, take a back seat as it were, and not just be, you know, the big duet. Sometimes he's done that, of course, like think of the things with Kiki D. Right. But other times he's just kind of there in a supportive position. And, you know, the spotlight doesn't have to be on him all the time. Right. He can he can really leave his ego aside because I, you know, he just loves music and likes working with people.
1: And there's another little fact, uh, the Kiki D duet was, I couldn't believe it. This was his all time greatest selling song. Is that right? I believe that's one of the entries.
0: Oh, does it say that? Either? I think so.
1: Yeah. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> that I don't remember. But, yeah, uh, <laughs> I was blown away out of all these great songs, you know, and that's, well, you know, one.
0: now, well now the greatest selling would be, um, candle in the wind.
1: Oh, post, uh, uh
0: when that was uh, released as a single when in the princess Diana version, <laughs> you know, that became the biggest selling single in, um, in Britain,
1: well, this is simply a gorgeous book it's a It's a fun read because you you know you can pick it up and put it down and it's not like a straight narrative, so it's just so much fun uh, to read and look at and it's gorgeous. You've written a lot of books and about a lot of bands and different artists, and given the baseline of seventy five years I'm curious is there someone out there that you'd like to throw out to the publisher as a deserving entry that you might like to write
0: well. I should be thinking about that more. So I can have a good suggestion. You know, some acts I've written about a lot, the the Beatles and Elvis or the solo Beatles. Those could seem obvious, but then again, there have been so many books on them. Right. So that might work against them. Um, Nirvana or, or Foo Fighters, they've certainly continued for a long time. I would have loved Queen, but they've already got that. Book. <laughs> so so they are not going to do that.
1: Well, there's tons coming along, and I'm sure uh, they'll be fun to follow. And I'm sure we'll have you on again because you you do a lot of writing on music and uh, always interesting. And thank you very much, Jillian, for coming on with us.
0: Well, thanks for inviting me. It was great fun, and I'd be happy to be back.
1: If you would like to buy this book, please go to allmusicbooks.com, and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive podcasts there as well and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I'd also like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. You can check him out at fullsound.com. Finally, big ups to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout the podcasts. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all of the major streaming services. Please support local and independent writers and musicians. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an allmusicbooks.com podcast and now a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network.